Um, before we open up uh, to God's word, I just want to um, say hello to John Wilson. Come on up here, John. Now, John's actually been in town five or six days now already. He said he wasn't going to talk, but I got him to talk. No, uh, um, but uh, John has been uh, faithfully serving us uh, in our armed forces, uh, specifically in what branch of the military? The only one, I guess, but uh, no, we have uh, many faithful uh, people who are serving us. And I just wanted to bring John up here uh, because uh, he is uh, being deployed when? Uh, In about two, three weeks. Two or three weeks. To where? Okinawa and the Pacific Ocean. So um, a little further away from mom. Uh, so we'll be praying for mom as she's already. Uh, but um, we're thankful for how God has protected John. And uh, would you join me in praying for, for him? Let's stand together. God, thank you for John. Thank you for the man that you have continued to grow him to be. And thank you for your faithfulness in his life. And Lord, we just continue to lift him up to you. We thank you for the safety uh, that you've provided him. Thank you how you've uh, guided him and uh, even uh, put him in a place where maybe he didn't foresee himself, but thank you that you are the God uh, who orders all of our steps. And Lord, as he heads to Japan and uh, to, uh, to be used as, uh, as the country needs um, deploying from there as well. Lord, we ask for continued protection. Lord, may you bring um, just faithful young men who love you around him, who can encourage him. Lord, may he be an example to those who he's around. And Lord, we continue to just entrust him into your care. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. You know what? I found out this morning that We have to say goodbye to some people today. Uh, Skip and Lee Nyhart are moving. But before they move, they're taking a fun little trip to Europe. Um, So uh, today is actually their last Sunday, uh, but they won't be moving until June 15th. So um, we will be remembering you guys and uh, moving to Clemson, South Carolina. So a little ways away, right? But uh, we will miss uh, you guys, your smiles. And uh, if you haven't gotten to know uh, Skip, he's got a great sense of humor and uh, has a long uh, history uh, with one of our missionaries, uh, Pete Mothershead. And uh, so I will miss you guys, but uh, we, uh, we look forward to see how God continues to work in your lives. So make sure to not slip out too fast. Uh, but also, um, thank you for your encouragement to me. Well, if you would, uh, open your Bible to Genesis 1. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Today we begin a, a new study on the book of Genesis. And... Uh, People had been asking as we were getting closer to the end of Matthew, what's next? And uh, we went from the beginning of the New Testament to the beginning of beginnings in Genesis. 
Look at Genesis 1.1 with me. You probably even have it memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you think of it, it's kind of an odd way to open a book. Because there's a story that backs this that is not explained. And we're going to be digging more into this verse next week. But I realized Friday afternoon and last night when I came back that I had enough for two sermons worth in my study this past week. So I've kind of made a little plan. You know how the Lord orders our steps? A man purposes in his heart, but the, man, the Lord orders his steps. Uh, we're actually going to be getting more into Genesis 1-1 next week, but what I want us to take a look at is to understand better, what is the book of Genesis all about? I mean, we, we understand it's a, a book of beginnings. And specifically, if you want to follow along in your notes, let's look at the book of Genesis, and even more specifically, the title. Uh, it's not a, a title that was given to itself. Uh, it's a title that actually, that we see the word Genesis is actually uh, the Greek word. The, uh, the Old Testament has been translated into Greek called the Septuagint. And the title in which the Septuagint gave it is Genesis. Genesis literally means origins or birth. We think of uh, the genesis of a thought, the beginning of a thought. But we also often are familiar with this first phrase, in the beginning. And while it is three words in the English, it is one word in the Hebrew. The word Bereshit. And that is the Hebrew name for this book. Bereshit, in the beginning. And the title tells us a lot about a book. That it is about a beginning. It is about an origin. But even more, just kind of analytically, what are some of its facts? What are some of the facts regarding the book of Genesis? There's 50 chapters. Isn't it nice to have a nice round number? If anyone ever asked you, how many chapters are in the book of Genesis? It's 50. And almost sometimes it's so simple that it's like, is it really 50, not 51, not 50, 49? No, 50. There's 1,533 verses. 38,267 words. And often the book of Genesis is called the longest book. But when we speak of the longest book, we're not speaking of the longest book as far as word count. But in Genesis... The time span that goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50 covers more time than all the rest of the books of the Bible combined. So as we walk through the book of Genesis, we're moving through a lot of history. So much so that we followed, we went, uh, the book of Matthew was really maybe 34 years. And we're going to see people who lived over 900 years. Think of that in context to the nation of the United States. How old is our country? 
Add 200 years plus one to my age, since you really know that. I wasn't quite a bicentennial baby. 238 years. And we're going to be looking at people whose lifespan spanned 900 plus years. So we begin to understand the scope of the book of Genesis is vast. Its style is kind of a mixture of several things, but for the most part, it would fall under the the genre of a narrative. But one of the things we have to be careful in a narrative is to not just think it's a story, meaning made up. For it is a true account. But as we look at the book of Genesis, let me give you just a little idea of the outline of the book of Genesis. There's a, a reoccurring phrase that happens many times. The history of or the genealogy of and then somebody. Often it's divided into 12 divisions. You have creation, the history of the heavens and the earth, and then it follows the genealogies of Adam, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, or, uh, and then Terah, or Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, the sons of Esau, and Jacob. We can divide it that way, but if you're like me, I'll never remember that. Is that fair to say? Uh, I'm not great at memorizing lists. But if you break it down into two pieces, then I can remember it easier. It's outline number one is the primitive history. Primitive history, chapters 1 to 11. And there are four events that take place in here. So there's two divisions, and each division has four things. The first division, primitive history, has four events. Creation, fall, flood, dispersion. What does dispersion mean? To disperse, to scatter. What do you think that's talking about? The Tower of Babel. So Genesis 1 to 11, in general, those are the four main events that take place. Genesis 1 to 11, primitive history. Genesis, technically, it's often split in the middle of chapter 11, but for the sake of just making it easier, 12 to 50 is the patriarchal history. Patriarch, you think of what? Abraham. So we're thinking more people. And there are four people or four men that are kind of the the crux of that patriarchal history. Who are those people? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's where we kind of, we always think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then who's that fourth one? But yet we must remember that Abraham covers 13 chapters. Isaac three chapters, Jacob, seven chapters, Joseph, 14. We see the life of Joseph in many ways. So again, how many chapters in the book of Genesis? 50. 1 to 11 is what? Primitive history. And we see four events. Say it with me, four events. What are those? Creation, fall, flood. Aha, good. Chapters 12 through 50, we see patriarchal. Four patriarchs. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that's kind of to give you, this is the great view. But what happens is we, we see the book of Genesis go from the, the macroscope to the microscope. Do you see what I say by that? There's going to be times when we see what's going on over the whole span. But then we're going to zoom in at times and see specific people, specific events, things that happen. And those two are not, you can't divide the two apart from one another. They're constantly interacting with one another. But thankfully, we understand that there's a great theme that weaves through. Now we get into the question of, when was the book of Genesis written? Scholars would agree. It is tied to the Exodus. Then you have to say, when did the Exodus happen? For the sake of trying to get down a lot of rabbit trails, about 1440 B.C. That would be what many would accept as the date of the Exodus, and therefore the writing of the book of Genesis. But there's a question we haven't asked. Who wrote it? And here's the thing, when we look at Scripture, never be afraid to ask Scripture a question. Sometimes I think in in conservative Christianity, we feel like, well, I'm not allowed to ask that question. Here's the thing. The Word of God stands forever. And we don't have to be afraid to ask the questions. We don't have to be afraid to ask the hard questions of Scripture. Because how can anyone write of Genesis 1, 1, and 2, and 3, and 4? They weren't there. Adam couldn't have written it because he wasn't there, right? Yet it is important to understand. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by who? God. We also understand that 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the what? Holy Spirit. It goes right along with Pastor Marcus's sermon last week. The Word of God is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Just the same way that Matthew could write the book of Matthew, even though he wasn't there at the birth of Christ. We see that the author of Genesis does not have to be at all of these places. But who was it? It is generally accepted, and I believe strongly affirmed, that it is Moses. Now, how do we get Moses? It's not, I, Moses, a bondservant of... We don't see that here, right? We actually don't even see any uh, attributing to any author. But what we have to do is we have to understand and to think like Hebrew would looking at the Bible. When they look at the book of Genesis, they don't just think Genesis... They think the word Pentateuch. What does that mean? Actually, I'm sorry, they would think Torah. 
Pentateuch, five scrolls is technically what that means. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the Hebrew mind, all of these are seen as one unit. And all of these are seen as one author. And so if we can figure out who the author of all of those are, we then know who the author of Genesis is. I'm throwing out a lot of terms here, but the, the Hebrew person would call the scriptures the Tanakh. It would be three divisions, the Torah or the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. You get the word Tanakh, T for Tanakh, N for the Hebrew word Navim, which is uh, prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings, T-N-K. That's where we get Tanakh. And we see that the whole Old Testament is in three pieces, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this isn't just something we've kind of made up. Because in Joshua chapter 8, verse 31, on the screen behind me, it says, Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of who? Moses. So literally, the book of the Torah of Moses. We, we see that it's not just referring to some random book, but that's referring to what we see as the Torah, this law, the Pentateuch. Ezra chapter 6, verse 18, And they set the priests in their divisions and Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. I'm sorry, but if you look in, in the table of contents, you don't see a book named Moses, right? Because it's not referring to a book. It's referring to the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. We see here in the Old Testament, it is being attributed to Moses. But even in the New Testament, we see the attributing. In Luke chapter 16, verse 29, But Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. This is the, the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, just send them back. It, and, he, and he's referring to, they have Moses and the prophets. He's not speaking of physical people. He's saying they have the whole law and they have the whole prophets. In Luke 24, Jesus speaking on the road to Emmaus. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, what? Law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. That Jesus is attributing. Okay, but let's, let's play skeptic here. How do we know that Moses is really the author of Genesis. That's more an argument for the, the authorship of the whole Pentateuch, those five books. Look at John 7.22 on the screen. Moses gave you circumcision. That is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now think about it. When did circumcision originate? Those four men, who's the first one? 
Abraham. Help me out. Which book of the Bible is that? Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. But notice what Jesus himself is speaking of about Moses. Moses gave you circumcision. How did he give them circumcision? He wrote it down. He wrote it down. Moses is the one whom they looked to to see him write about circumcision. So look at this again. God the Son, God incarnate, is saying Moses wrote about circumcision. Here in Genesis chapter 17. We see it again in Acts chapter 15. But some of the men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of who? Moses. Again, pointing back to Genesis chapter 17. Moses is the author. Now, did Moses take some other historical accounts and write them? Possibly. But we also see that in the whole Pentateuch, we see the death of Moses. How's that happen? A scribe later attributed it and put that information in there. Does that then make it null and void? Absolutely not. For we stand that it is Moses' words. There were a few terms even that were kind of changed and given understanding. But there's a lot of attack on the authorship of the book of Genesis. People want to say, It was not Moses, but instead it was a series of maybe three or four different types of documents and different people that came together in more of an eclectic. There's a hypothesis called the document hypothesis, sometimes called the JEDP. Have you ever heard that or JEP? It is somewhat dwindling now. But but this JEDP or JEP is this argument that, that these are... Writings that happened in different times, sometimes later, that are pulled together to make the book of Genesis. Again, think eclectic. Four sources, multiple editors that kind of push this together into one. And the way they get this JEDP is you have one section, the Yahweh, or kind of the, the J. The Elohis, the E, the Deuteronomist, the D, and the Priestly. Each of those, the Yahweh's for from the southern kingdom of Judah, 950 BC. Notice, 500 years after. Notice they're trying to late date. The Elohis, 850. The Deuteronomist, 600, and the Priestly, 500. Why are they trying to do this? No other portions of the Old Testament especially have been under such criticism. Let me just kind of state, this documentary hypothesis, though in general it has been even secularly discredited, its impact still leaves in so many different ways. 
listen when, when you hear somebody talking about the book of Genesis. They'll talk about, well, these different people came together to write it. No, Moses did. But why is there such an attack? Number two in your notes, this is a book of great importance. This is a book of importance. I, I found many quotes, and I didn't want to just kind of fill our time with this, but one specifically from a study Bible I have, it says, if the history and theology in the Pentateuch, including Genesis, are brought under suspicion, then the authority and veracity of the rest of the Bible, including the gospel itself, crumble. Because we need to understand that the book of Genesis is the foundation for all of the word of God. If you rip out Genesis, even if you just take out Genesis 1 to 11, you've undermined all of Scripture. And I want to I sit on this for a moment and show you why this is so important. It, the book of Genesis is not just some kind of just historical book. The New Testament alone uh, quotes either directly or alludes to 165 passages in the book of Genesis, excuse me, in the New Testament. Those 165 are used about 200 times. Is this a coincidence? Is this some book that really doesn't matter? No, even the New Testament by its usage and quotations of it show its foundational aspects. And we as believers need to understand that if the New Testament quotes it this many times, we probably need to have a better understanding of what the book of Genesis is teaching us. That it's not just some stories that are put together, but it's foundational. One has said the Bible would be incomplete and perhaps incomprehensible without the book of Genesis. Again, the title Genesis the idea of the beginning or conception or birth shows that this is a book of beginnings. This is a book of beginnings. Think of the things that begin here in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we see that time begins. We're going to look at this more next week. We see the origins of the universe we see the origin of man. We see the origin of marriage. We see the origin in chapter 3 of evil. We see the origin of death. We see the origin of submission and headship. We see the origin of kingdom. We see the origin of language and the division of the growing number of languages. We see the origin of culture. We see the origin of various nations. We see the origin of polytheism, of religions that have multiple gods. We see the origin of false religions that even have one god. And I'm just, I'm just grabbing the, 
the peaks of the mountains here. But when we begin to think of all of these things that have their beginning in the book of Genesis, it makes sense that there's a lot of things that don't make sense outside if we rip out Genesis 1. Excuse me, Genesis, the book of. But it's not just some origins. There's also origins of, because this is a book of theology. Even though this is a narrative book, it is a book teaching us great things. And doctrines have their foundation here. If you've ever heard Ken Ham speak with Answers in Genesis, he is one man today who's really championing and helping people understand that Genesis 1 to 11 lays so many theological foundations that when we undermine Genesis, we throw so many things out. But think of some of these doctrines that are at least started here in the book of Genesis the Trinity, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, how those work together. Angels, Satan, the origin and effects of sin. But then we get into other areas like the picture of redemption, of atonement tied with that sacrifice. You could throw in the word justification. These are some bigger words, but have their roots here in Genesis 1, 2, and even 3. Propitiation. Words like grace have their foundations here in Genesis. Election. Not casting a ballot, but God's election. Providence. The Messiah. These are topics that we're going to be getting at in the the weeks to come. But most importantly, Genesis is a book of God. What I mean is, God is the center of the book. It was a year and a half ago in the the fall, we had done a study uh, called Yahweh, seeing God through the lives of Old Testament saints. And that is what is so important, that as we study, and especially when we get into these narrative sections, it can be so uh, easy for us to get focused and to say, well, okay, now how did this work? They went from here to here to here, and, and this person begat this person who begat this person. I, I'm lost. I don't even remember all the names now. But what we need to understand is that on every page is God revealing himself. First of all, we see his character revealed. One of my favorite 
passages in the Bible is in Jeremiah 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What does the Lord declare there? That he desires and he wants to see us seeking to know, to understand him. But he hasn't left us blind here on this earth to kind of walk through and try to figure things out. He's shown us. And even from Genesis 1-1, we see himself putting himself on display. As we study all of Scripture, we should see him. But I want to encourage us, as we study the book of Genesis, that our study should then launch us into praise to God. That it's not just information that, yay, I can pass a test because I know the the line of the patriarchs. But it's a, I see the God behind those patriarchs more and more. For in here we see God's grace on display. We see his holiness on display. His love, his faithfulness, his provision, his might, his power, his sovereignty. For he reveals his character. But we also see his plan revealed. What is the book of Genesis about? It shows us the plan of God. That he has chosen to create a people and to call a people that are his. Why? The purpose is his glory. Why have we been created? His glory. His plan is a people to save, but the purpose is His glory. And when we look at the book of Genesis, do we see the glory of God? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Genesis 1 says, Here are the heavens. So do we see the heavens declaring the glory of God as we study it? I don't know about you, but Genesis 1 to 3, I kind of, I have the history figured out a little bit better. 4 and 5 and the, we get to the flood, okay. Then we get past the flood and Babel. And then there's kind of some old people. I know Abraham's in there, and I know he had some sons that are important. But we see the plan of God. 
And that thread of redemption begin and to weave itself through. Why are each of those people important? Because they are part of the sovereign plan of God to point us to Christ. From our great need to our great provision, Genesis kind of sets that arrow in motion in its direction. And we understand what it's accomplishing. And there's all sorts of some interesting facts, but if we lose sight of the plan of God to save a people for His glory, we've lost view of what Genesis is trying to show us. It's not just a history book to put in our informational minds. It's to show us the great God so that we would know how to worship Him better. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to see the glory of God on display. And I, I pray that as we study, we will see His glory and not just say, okay, God, but respond to Him in praise. I've entitled this series, In the Beginning, God. Because I want us to understand that God is that center. And may he receive the glory and the praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled today as we open your word and begin to understand this great book. Lord, it's... uh, Its size can sometimes be intimidating. Uh, The names and the genealogies can sometimes be confusing. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study it, that you would show us yourself on each page. For you are God and there is no other. You are God and there is none like you. (coughs) We pray that We would be like the man that you desire when you spoke to Jeremiah, that we would understand you and that we would know you and we stand in awe that you have revealed yourself to us. Give us the eyes of faith to see. Give us the ears of faith to hear your word. Give us the feet of faith to apply your word that as a result of this book, you would receive honor and glory. That which you are due. Lord, you are our God. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would be praised in Christ's name. Amen.